right, welcome back everybody. Today we are going to talk about Haggai, and really this is kind of the beginning of uh, a long section in the Minor Prophets anyway. Even though you might be thinking to yourself, Haggai is quite short, it's only two chapters, and you are certainly correct about that. But Haggai and Zechariah are really closely connected books. Not only did these guys minister at exactly the same time, Actually, Haggai's ministry lasts less than a year, at least as recorded in his book. Uh, Undoubtedly, he had a longer ministry. And Zechariah really picks up exactly where Haggai left off. So even though Haggai is quite short, it really is one with Zechariah. They're going to talk about some of the same things. Although, ultimately, uh, Zechariah is going to expand significantly on what Haggai has to say with all of his extra space. But we are going to start with Haggai today. And in many ways, this is not only a start of a new book, but it's actually a slightly new section of our Bibles because between Zephaniah and Haggai, we have a major change in the, uh, the nation of Judah, the fate of God's people. Uh, there is a big event. In fact, I was actually trying to think through as far as if you were to read Scripture in order straight through. I don't think, other than Malachi to Matthew, there is a bigger time jump and a more abrupt change of scenery, if you will, between any two books of the Bible when you finish Zephaniah and you start Haggai. I mean, there's a big change. And if you just were reading, it probably would catch you off guard. So we want to explain what happened between Zephaniah and Haggai. There's at least a 70-year period, possibly as many as 90 years, depending on when Zephaniah was written, uh, between these two books, and a lot changes. And Haggai himself doesn't talk about what changed, because there's other books that talk about this in the Bible. Uh, But we want to talk about them real quick. So all of the minor prophets so far, the first nine, and in fact, many other uh, parts of our Bibles as well, have been leading towards a great judgment by God on the sin of Judah. Now, specifically, God has specified that it's the Babylonians that are going to perform this judgment. We learned that from Habakkuk. And we've learned all of the specifics on what various problems the Judeans have and refuse to repent from. Remember, the pattern was God would announce that Judah or Israel were sinning. He would call them to repentance. They did not repent, and therefore a correction was necessary. Now, God actually, even in this, was merciful. He three times sent the Babylonians to the Judeans, the first two times perhaps giving them a chance to turn from their sin, but they did not do so. So we actually have a total of three Babylonian captures of the Israelite, or rather Judean people, all of which are recorded in Scripture. Second Kings and Second Chronicles would be where you could go to read about these three separate events. There's a capture of people in 605. There's a capture of people in 597. It's entirely possible, although commentators, of course, have argued about this for hundreds of years, that Daniel and his friends may have been carried off at this time. And then finally, there is the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586, where a vast majority of the population of Judah is taken away and sent into Babylonian captivity. Now, 586 is the big one. This is the final judgment where Judah as a political entity is gone. But really, Babylon comes in three separate times. And through these three separate events, it eliminates Judah and 
brings God's judgment. Now, that being said, the Judean people are not destroyed. Um, Most of them, as the screen shows a, a painting, were really taken away and they were captured. However, this means that the final three minor prophets are actually on a different topic. They're actually going to talk about the return or the returned population long after, probably really two generations after the events of the Babylonian captivity. So again, we have a 70 to 90 year jump. And in the intervening time, of course, many things have happened that other parts of the Bible talk about. The period between when the Babylonians take the Judeans and when they're allowed to return to Jerusalem is typically called the exile. Now, God specifically mentions a 70-year exile, and this does actually matter to Haggai. Most Bible scholars count this starting in 605 B.C., that first Babylonian deportment, and therefore it would end in 535. That is approximately, or actually it's exactly 70 years Okay, there's other ways that you can date this, but the point is that there's approximately 70 years where the Jews are not going to have a homeland. This coincides almost exactly with the length of the Babylonian rulership over the world of the Near East. Now, in this exile, many Jews are actually going to choose to either remain where they were or they're going to take a very long time to return to their original locations. And by the way, the Bible lists some of these people, and it even talks about prophets God sent to these people to help them wherever they were. Daniel, for example, um, chooses to remain in Babylon, even though it would have at least theoretically been possible for him to go back to Jerusalem. He still feels that he has things to do there. Ezekiel is a prophet who ministers to people in exile. And of course, Esther and her uncle um, are also in this group. They did not return when uh, they had the option to do so, or at least their families did in the case of Esther. Now, Cyrus the Great, who is actually the first person in our Bibles to be called Messiah, which is just a technical term. It means someone who saves me from something. Okay, that's not capital M Messiah. It's just a word. Uh, He is going to release the Jews from exile, and he is going to enable them to return to Jerusalem. And he's actually going to fund and support this project. He's going to not only make it legal to go home, But he's going to give the Jews money. He's even going to give them, according to the book of Ezra, the things that the Babylonians stole out of the temple. So he's not just going to send them back. He's going to do whatever he can to make that possible. Now, God actually had given many instructions, Jeremiah being another prophet who had something to say to those in exile. Uh, He says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, so where you're living now, into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So not only did the Jews go into exile, for some of them staying in exile was fine. God here is obviously blessing them and telling them to do what they can. Now, of course, the Jews do a very good job at first. 
of maintaining their faith, of maintaining their purity to God. In fact, the expansion of the gospel in the book of Acts is really going to rely on this exile. Paul and the other disciples go to synagogues where the Old Testament is still being taught and they're going to build on that foundation to preach Christ. So that's a good thing. However, the book of Haggai occurs in Jerusalem, which means that some of the people of the exile do in fact return. And again, if you're familiar with your biblical history, you probably knew this. Now, Cyrus's decree is recorded for us in the very beginning of the book of Ezra. And what this tells us is that the Jews could go back and actually Cyrus speaks for God. Of course, I don't think Cyrus knew he was speaking for God, but it's recorded in the book of Ezra. He says, Jews, I want you to go back to your homeland and I want you to build God's temple because God needs a temple. He needs a place to be worshipped correctly. And so he actually sends the Jews back. This first return is a return under a man by the name of Zerubbabel, actually probably started by his father, uh, who may have died along the way, completed by Zerubbabel. This is the first expedition. Its job, its purpose, what God had told it to do was rebuild the temple. I want you to keep that in mind when we get to Haggai's message. Now, just for your own context, there's two further returns that both occur after Haggai and Zechariah. We have a return by Ezra, which occurred in 457 B.C. By the way, we know these dates with certainty because the Jews recorded what year of the Persian kings these occurred in. And we know for certain when years were in Persia. So we finally have dates we can be very, very confident in. The third return was the return of Nehemiah, which occurred in 445 B.C. But Ezra and Nehemiah have not arrived yet. The book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah occur between that first return with Zerubbabel and the second return of Ezra. And this is a picture of the Persian Empire, a map of the Persian Empire, showing you all of the various locations where eventually people were resettled and moved. Of course, Jerusalem being here and being a quite major part of the Persian Empire. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah are unique individuals who unfortunately, uh, unlike a few of the earlier prophets, we don't know too much about Haggai opens with this. This is Haggai chapter 1, if you're not already there. This is where most of tonight's lesson will come from. In the second year of Darius, or Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, Haggai and Zechariah are, as far as we know, not people that there is more information about. Haggai's name comes up in the book of Ezra, and it comes up in the book of Zechariah, but any additional details about him, we are entirely reliant on tradition. Okay, There is tradition about Haggai and Zechariah since they're late prophets. The Jews recorded um, ideas about them, but we don't have anything from Scripture, so we have to take it with a grain of salt. The Jews consider both Haggai and Zechariah as psalmists and as priests. That's what the Jews believed both of them were. And, of course, that's entirely possible. Again, it's just not confirmed by Scripture. In fact, Psalm 111, 112, 138, 146, 147, and 148 have all been ascribed by the Jews 
to Haggai and Zechariah. Um, at times one of them, sometimes both of them. Um, your Bibles may even include that in a parenthesis. Again, there's nothing in the psalm that says this was written by. Uh, but again, this is Jewish tradition. Helpful, certainly not necessarily something that we have to believe, but I thought that was interesting. Now, Haggai makes a comment in chapter 2, verse 3, that some of you remember what the old temple looked like, and this temple is not as grand. That has led some scholars to believe that Haggai himself had seen the old temple, which would make him very old at the time of his book, possibly as late as his 90s, certainly if he had even seen it as a child, he would have been in his mid-70s. So this would have been a quite older man to have made the long trip back to Jerusalem, but entirely possible, of course. What we can be certain of is that he had returned with Zerubbabel. However, what you might not know is that Haggai occurs 18 years after Zerubbabel returns, and as we're going to talk about in a second, the temple had not been built. So they've had 18 years to do what God asked them to do. It hasn't happened yet, and that's going to be a problem. Now, on a positive note, Haggai has another distinctive feature in the minor prophets. He is the only minor prophet who preached a message and was obeyed, and the Israelites did exactly what God asked them to do. So that's kind of a nice breath of fresh air, okay? Most of the rest of the minor prophets, unfortunately, are a story of God giving instructions that are not followed. Haggai, that is not the case. Haggai also is the only prophet that can be dated with complete precision. In fact, there are four total messages. Actually, there's five, but two of them occur on the same day. But there are four total days covered by the book of Haggai. And we know the exact dates they occurred on because, again, Haggai told us what day it was in each king's reign. And we know the dates of the kings of Persia with extreme precision. So I can tell you which days uh, that Haggai prophesied. He prophesied on August 29th, 520. He prophesied on September 21st, 520. October 21st, so we're coming up very soon on one of the Haggai prophecy days. And finally, December 18th, 520, all in the same year, all in the same five months time span. And by the way, Zechariah got a prophecy in between prophecies four and five. So lots of things going on in Israel on this particular uh, year. So 520 is the year for all of these prophecies. So we know with precision, because Haggai says, on this day in this month of the reign of King Darius, this is when I prophesied. So we can know 100% when he did this. The last piece of context, and I know there's a lot of context, but this is going to set up not only the truth that I think God has for us tonight, but Johnny's going to talk about Zechariah 1 next week, and we need to know this context so that we can understand this section. This is also part of what's called the Second Temple Pyramid. Period, And this is important because the second temple has not quite been built yet at the beginning of Haggai, but it will be up by the time of Zechariah. So everything between 535, when the exiles begin to come back, and AD 70 is sometimes called the second temple period because the first temple, Solomon's temple, was leveled by the Babylonians. It was so leveled that nothing but possibly foundations was left Uh, which archaeologists have perhaps found underneath the existing Temple Mount, but it's completely leveled. Now, what's confusing is that the temple that the Israelites will build after the message of Haggai, which may have looked something like this, okay, this is possibly what it looks like, 
This is going to be knocked down and rebuilt by Herod to build Herod's temple, which you've probably seen pictures of. But the Jews considered these the same temple. They're actually different buildings in the same location, but it was still called the second temple, even though by technicality, I suppose it should be the third temple. That's what it should have been called, but it wasn't called that. In the Jewish mind, same building, even though it looked completely differently. Now, it's in the same place. It's on that same temple mount that the modern uh, temple ruins are on, but it looked completely different. This is an artist's projection of what it may have looked like. Archaeology can't really help us because Herod um, completely covered over the site. Now, despite the funding that Cyrus had given, he gave an annual stipend. He gave all of the goods of the temple back. God's house had been, for some reason, neglected. And that is what's going to prompt Haggai to deliver his prophecies from God. And so we want to talk about this because apparently the Israelites were prioritizing themselves over God. This is what Haggai 1, 4, and 5 say. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, God's house, lies in ruin? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The central problem is that the people were failing to prioritize God over themselves. And by the way, Haggai says as a result of this, if you read the verses right after this, God was punishing them. They were planting crops and the crops were rotting before they could be harvested. They were attempting to make money, but the money was literally running out of their own pockets or out of the bags that they kept their money in. Because God had given them a command, even though it came through Cyrus, of course, we know that God used Nebuchadnezzar, a much less seemingly kind man towards the Jews than Cyrus to speak his words. So God says, I was serious when I said, build my house. That's what I wanted you to do. Now, Haggai says this, if you obey God, if you build his house, then prosperity will return. And here's the cool thing. In both chapters 1 and 2, we see very clearly that the people obey, especially the leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. The leadership of Israel is going to obey. This is a breath of fresh air, a contrast to the leaders previously in the last nine minor prophets who do not obey, and therefore God has to punish them. This is not that way. Now, there's a distinctive phrase here that I want us to focus on because Haggai repeats it twice in chapter 1. He repeats it three times in chapter 2. He continuously says this, Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways. That's the phrase that Haggai keeps repeating. Consider your ways. Think about what you are doing. In fact, in Hebrew, this is actually what's called an idiom. It literally reads, set your eyes upon the road. But in Hebrew at this time, it really meant think about what you're doing. Now, this is actually a really good phrase to keep in mind because the Jews are going to struggle with this, not only in Haggai, not only in Zechariah, certainly in Malachi, but they're going to have this problem in the Gospels because the Gospels and these three prophets have a lot in common because the Jews are kind of changing problems. Their old problem was idolatry, and they really struggled with it, but God's judgment in 586 seemingly ends that problem for them. No more Baal worship, no more false gods. Their problem after 586 is not so much who they're worshiping. They got that right. They're worshiping God. The problem is they're not thinking about 
how they're worshiping. Think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees' knowledge of the first five books of the Bible was excellent, okay? They came up with all these rules to theoretically keep the first five books, but they weren't thinking about what they were actually doing. They were keeping the laws, at least they thought they were, but they weren't actually worshiping the God who created the laws. Haggai's statement here, consider your thoughts, is something that the Jews should have kept in mind. Now, again, this is not to denigrate the Jews and Zerubbabel and Joshua who responded in Haggai. They got this right. They did consider their thoughts. But as time goes on, the Judeans are going to struggle with this. Now, by the way, as a response to obedience, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. So there is positivity here for the Jews But finally, I want to conclude with thinking about this. Are we prioritizing Jesus or ourselves? I was telling a pastor today, I read a commentary that suggested Haggai be used uh, when preaching building programs. Okay, that is not correct at all. Okay, not correct. You're not going to hear me do that, pastor, obviously. This is not a book about building programs, okay? But there is a principle here I think we should keep in mind. And that is, are we doing what God has asked us to do? Cyrus and several places in the prophets had given the Jews a clear command, go and build the temple, go and do this thing. And yet, 18 years later, the Jews were giving themselves all kind of excuses. Now is not the time, Haggai says that. Uh, We don't have the resources. We have to build our own houses and then we can focus on God. Sometimes I think if we're not careful, we do the same thing. At the very least, God has called all of us to go and make disciples if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But do we do the same thing? God, it's not the right time right now. Going and making disciples isn't maybe for me. It's for the next generation. They can go and make the disciples. It's not for me. So I think this is a good call For us to ask this question, are we doing what God has commanded us to do? Are we fulfilling the very clear commands of God? And I think Haggai's challenge to the Jews should serve as an opportunity for us to reflect. By the way, Jesus did this as well, and it's one of the most challenging things he ever said. Luke 9, 57 through 62, you're probably familiar with this passage. Jesus says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, this wasn't Jesus being mean or Jesus, you know, requiring undue things. Jesus called people to follow him. And he expected people to obey, not to do other things and then obey him, but to respond now. Follow Jesus. That is what we are called to do. Make disciples for Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Not in 18 years, not some future generation, but us. So let's keep that in mind as we think about Haggai. And let's also remember that the children of Israel obeyed, and so we can too. Let's obey what God has asked us to do. Let's pray. 
Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the opportunity to consider the message that you had for the children of Israel through Haggai. Help us to use it to reflect on the commands that you've given us. Help us to think through what do you expect of us and are we obeying. And if we're not, Lord, help us to begin to obey like Zerubbabel and Joshua did in Haggai. Help us to change what we're doing and instead do what you've prioritized. Help us tonight to follow you, to give our lives for you and to follow your commands to the best of our ability. Lord, help us to be more like Jesus this week. We ask this in your name. Amen. The most important thing our church can communicate with you is the gospel message. The word gospel means good news. The trouble with most good news is that it isn't really good until you see it relative to bad news. The discovery of a new cure isn't all that helpful unless you or a loved one has the disease that it cures. In the same way, the good news of Jesus is good when it is understood in relation to the bad news of our own sin. We are all sinners. That's the disease we are all born with. And Jesus is the cure. The good news that everyone can live forever with God in heaven, not because of anything we can do, but because of what Jesus did in our place. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth that everyone, everywhere, at all times in history needs to hear is that salvation is only possible by putting our faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Would you be willing to pray something like this and mean what you pray from your heart? Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I know I can do nothing to earn forgiveness and make myself right with you. Instead of dying for my own sins, I want to trust Christ and his death on the cross as payment for my sins. I want to repent from doing things my way and make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. The Bible tells us that those that repent from their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in this way shall be saved. Would you believe on him today? And if you did trust Christ today, if you did pray a prayer like the one suggested a moment ago and you really meant it, would you let us know? We want to help you grow in your understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have more questions about putting your faith in Christ and we have great resources to help you with that. The Exchange Bible Study is a four-week study on the character of God that will answer most of your questions about the gospel. We have men and women ready and waiting to go through that with you in person or virtually, depending on your situation. Maybe you put your faith in Christ today, or, or maybe you did years ago, but you feel like you've not grown in your faith. We want to help you with that as well. We have literally hundreds of helpful resources and dozens of believers ready to walk with you through them. Let us know how we can best encourage your journey of faith in Christ using one of the contact methods listed below. Jesus Christ loves you and wants to spend eternity with you. May God bless you as you seek to live your life for his honor and for his glory.